Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with our TechCrunch writers, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. The Department of Homeland Security was using mobile data to track the movement of Americans far more than was previously known. New data obtained by the ACLU using the Freedom of Information Act indicates that both immigration and customs agencies in the U.S. were at one point obtaining location information at a rate of more than 26 locations per minute from phones, all without warrants. The ACLU is using this new revelation to push passage of the bipartisan Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act, a proposed law that would require government agents to secure court orders before getting data like smartphone location info from data brokers. You can read more about this on TechCrunch from Carly Page. GM finally fully revealed its much-teased all-electric Chevy Blazer EV on Monday. The SUV, which looks more like a crossover to me, promises up to 320 miles of range per charge with a starting price of $48,000. It's likely to go head-to-head with the Tesla Model Y for market share, but undercuts the Tesla on price while roughly matching it on range. You can check out more on TC from Jacqueline Tropp. Tesla has gotten rid of 75% of its once substantial Bitcoin holdings, recouping $963 million through the sale according to its most recent quarterly earnings report. Last February, Tesla announced that it was buying $1.5 billion in Bitcoin alongside opening up Bitcoin as a payment option for its cars. It quickly reversed plans to accept crypto for Tesla vehicles, however, and obviously it didn't seem to have as much confidence in Bitcoin as an asset as it once did either. Lucas Matney has more about Tesla's crypto confusion on TC. Amazon is buying One Medical, a tech-enabled primary care provider that provides on-demand virtual visits. The deal is valued at $3.9 billion, which is Amazon's third most expensive acquisition to date. Amazon has done a number of things in healthcare, including spinning up its own on-demand care offering for employees and expanding it to select external partners, as well as opening its own digital pharmacy. It's been clear that Amazon wants to do something big in healthcare for a while, but this is the boldest move it's made yet in this space. Check out more on this major deal on TC from Ingrid London. This week, we talked to Anita Ramaswamy about regulating the crypto industry and Lauren Forrestal about how streaming giant Netflix is attempting to make up for massive subscriber losses. First up, we're talking to crypto reporter Anita Ramaswamy about an article she wrote with Jacqueline Melanick on how regulators are thinking about crypto. Hi, Anita. How's it going? It's going well, Daryl. It's been a crazy week. I have had a lot going on. I went to a virtual conference or a virtual event, which I think we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I think if people are regular followers of the news cycle, they might think of this time as the summer slowdown. But it sounds like for a lot of people on staff, that's not true at all. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know if it's, you know, sort of New York specific or like everyone is just in this summer boom right now. But I've been invited to so many like events and happy hours and meetings in person, which it's fun. I don't mind the heat. I'm from Arizona, Mm. so we're pushing through. Yeah, nice. So you did mention that conference. So it was Bloomberg's Crypto Summit. Yeah, and that's right. one of the speakers there was former SEC chairman Jay Clayton. And he had a rather provocative quote, which used the headline for this article by you and Jacqueline. So can you tell me a bit about the context or what he said and then the context, I guess, in which he said it? Yeah. So essentially he was talking about, you know, crypto today and regulation and how the the panel was on regulation. So it was former chairman Clayton and then, you know, the U.S. head of policy at Coinbase, like a couple different people who were all talking about the regulatory environment and crypto. And what was really funny is that he was trying to basically say that not everyone in crypto is a scammer. Not every company is committing fraud or anything like that. Clayton, kind of important to note, like left his regulatory position and he's now working in the crypto 
industry too. Mm -hmm. So kind of interesting to see that he went from that really like objective sort of regulator role into the industry. But what he said at this conference was there's a tremendous number of responsible players in the industry. There were irresponsible players in the industry with the ICO boom. And he called that garbage. He said that was garbage. That was absolute garbage. And regulators have to respond to the garbage first. That's the job. Referring to regulation. Uh, Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's an interesting historical comparison for him to bring up, right? Because it raises a number of questions about, they probably didn't have time to get into this on stage, but about like the extent to which those two trends will be similar. ICOs was just a way to generate a lot of cash really quickly, right? With this coin offering. Kind of reminds me of something else, which is SPACs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It it was very similar to SPACs, which are a way to generate a lot of capital really quickly that's confirmed capital. Like you you know this is what it's going to be, right? Yeah, essentially just ways for companies to fundraise without the quote unquote hassle or, you know, all the the bureaucratic burden of going through the traditional processes, which I think that that is what happened in the ICO boom. Yeah. So what is the end state? Do you think that this envisions like a period during which crypto is like a much smaller chunk of kind of the overall tech financial picture versus what it looks like now? Like, does that mean it's driving towards something that becomes niche and becomes very specific in the way that ICOs are now? Like we don't hear about them day to day. They still exist, but they're used for very specific purposes. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that actually brings me back to thinking about SPACs as well. I think we've seen something similar where like, you know, they've been around for a while. All of a sudden there was a huge surge in interest and now it's sort of fading away as, you know, some of the issues with disclosure and, you know, the laws are really coming up. I think the same thing will happen to crypto, to be honest. And maybe this is, you know, some people will say I'm spreading FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt. You know, I'm sure that not everyone will agree with me on this, but I I do think that it's very (laughs) much true that, you know, there are a ton of really great use cases for crypto and for blockchain, but there are also so many shitty ones out there where it's like, you don't actually need crypto to make this happen. And I think a lot right. of those are just going to start falling away. I do think regulators will, you know, they're, they're, they've taken a light approach, at least in the US so far, and they haven't really mm-hmm. cracked down too hard. But I think that the bear market is going to give them an opportunity to come in swinging a little stronger. And I think by the end of it, crypto is still going to be very much thriving. It's still going to be alive. There's still going to be a lot of activity in the space. And maybe, you know, we're not going to see as much of a pullback as we did during the ICO boom, because that was one specific product and one specific aspect of crypto. Right. But overall, yeah, I think the lasting effects of this is that there was so much exuberance. And I don't think it's necessarily going to like revolutionize our financial system in the way that some people have said it will. I mean, crypto is not that new of a technology. People say it's still early days, but it's like, okay, I mean, it's really been around for like, I don't know, 10 years now, more than that in some cases. Yeah, we've been hearing that early days phrase for quite a long time, right? right? And if you compare it to like some of the major technology shifts, like mobile, for instance, right? You did not hear it's early days for mobile for a full decade, I I would say. No, (laughs) definitely not. Yeah. And that's exactly it, right? I do think that, you know, similar to the ICO boom, like a lot of people have been saying like crypto is going to change everything. It's going to fundamentally transform. I'm like, yeah, there are some cases that it's transformed business processes, payment systems, et cetera. But I think those are on a lot smaller of a scale than maybe the narrative that we've heard a lot in the past year. Right. So one of the things you brought up was that they're going to be able to get in there and start setting some guidelines, right? And something else that came up in your article is that that doesn't mean that it's going to be shut down. Like the U.S. has never essentially been super aggressive when it comes to regulating 
private markets and private market investors. I forget who in your article pointed this out, but on a global scale, it's like extremely lax when it comes to regulating those things versus other large global players, right? Yeah, I think that was actually uh, Clayton who said that. And he basically was saying that, you know, yes, in the US, people are always saying we need more regulation in crypto. We need more of a crackdown. But if you look at any other country or you look across the globe, regulations are actually a lot more lax when it comes to investor protection. The US truly, and I think he was right about this, has been at the forefront of creating those laws and creating those provisions for investor protection. I don't think that means that they've moved fast enough on crypto. I don't think they really have. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's worth noting that compared to where other countries might be, the US has been making rules, but still friendly enough to yeah. the industry because they don't want to be seen as stifling innovation. They don't want to end the party that is crypto. A lot of people have gotten <laughs> pretty wealthy off of it. And even the sentiment is looking down a little bit now. I just think they're taking more of the approach of like, let's go in and learn. Yeah and try to figure this out versus like, let's crack down. And you can see that with the crypto bill that Senator Gillibrand and Senator Loomis proposed earlier, where it's seen as pretty friendly to the industry, all things considered. And they took the approach of listening, learning versus immediately saying, you know, we're going to shut this all down. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like the industry too is now at the point where they're very welcoming of this. Like they seem almost eager for it. And you wonder, yeah, they want it. Right. And is it because of this garbage thing? Like they, for them, it works best too. If the garbage is out and if there's protections around some of the stuff that goes on that affects them and their customers, like negatively. I think it's two things. I mean, part of it is that, sure, when you have some high quality companies saying, hey, like the industry has a bad reputation, all these other shitty companies are bringing us down. But I think what's more prevalent, because there are a lot of companies that, you know, aren't the greatest out there in in crypto and (laughs) in general. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, to be honest, but yeah, the other part of it is really about the clarity. Like, I think it's once you know the rules and once you know what the framework is, then you can operate within that. And there has been a really big push from a lot of people in crypto asking for the SEC and for regulatory bodies in the U.S. to regulate by making the rules rather than by enforcing first. Mm. So they want clarity. They want something actually written out as to how they should act. You know, I think regulatory action has been perceived as like, oh, they're coming and they're already imposing consequences when the rules weren't that clear in the first place. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is the worst possible state to be in is to be acting in a sort of like arena of uncertainty and then have your actions be penalized for actions that you didn't know were wrong to begin with, but that you're told retroactively were wrong. Right. So I can understand wanting more clarity on that. So they also mentioned or did they talk about this sort of stablecoin collapse at all in this panel? I know you brought it up in your article. Yeah, a little bit. That was seen as one of, with this crypto bill, the bipartisan crypto bill, everyone's talking about it. And I think the crypto industry and the general public like really wants this thing passed. And Congress moves slow. Everyone knows that. So the question is like, what are the provisions that might end up passing first? And stablecoin rules, that was one of the top things on the list. And Senator Gillibrand and Loomis, both of them said, you know, this is a priority. This is something that they're likely to get bipartisan consensus on and actually are likely to vote on by the end of the year. So I think it's likely this bill is going to be split up into some smaller pieces and certain things are going to get pushed through before the others. Stable coins are a super high priority right now because of everything that happened with Terra. Yeah. I mean, it was quite the fiasco. And then so many different points in that story, too, where it was like, we're turning it around. And you're like, wait a minute, this is still going? I don't understand. It's very much still going (laughs) with other different protocols collapsing, going bankrupt. And I think there's no precedent for a lot of these things. So, you know, regulators are sort of just shooting from the hip at this point. (laughs) Yeah, because they're all looking and waiting, too. Like, when can this get to a settled state where we can try to make some, like, judgments about it? But there is no settled state, right? It's like, it's an ongoing fiasco. I mean, part of the question that I had, you know, writing this was like, why has it taken right. regulators so long? Like what, what has been the roadblock? And I think it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, them wanting to maybe not stop the party too early and, you know, wanting to be lax. 
the other thing that I thought was really interesting was the U.S. head of policy at Coinbase, Kara Calvert, right. mentioned something about how our system in the U.S. is. She originally said fragmented, and then she corrected herself and you know referred to it as bifurcated. Mm-hmm. She wasn't trying to convey the point that she feels it's in- ineffective, but she said we have this bifurcated system for rulemaking where there's different agencies, different bodies that oversee different parts of crypto. Mm-hmm. And even with states' rights versus the federal legislation, we've seen a lot of issues play out in the crypto industry, like Binance, it's the largest global exchange. Yeah. You know, there's certain states that you can't trade on Binance, right. there's other ones that you can. And so what Kara's point was, was that we need to have some consistency. It's not just about the U.S. aligning with global regulation, it's also about the U.S. getting on the same page internally. Yeah. No, absolutely. This is very weird timing, but I was on the bus the other day, like just yesterday, <laughs> riding the, the public bus and yeah. a guy like a few seats back was like talking very loudly about his crypto portfolio. That's hilarious. He was talking <laughs> about how his, I don't know if it was his Coinbase or his Binance. He said something was frozen and it was because there was not an international trade agreement about around this. And so they were like froze the wallet, froze access to the wallet. And he characterized it as just like took everything, the contents oh, wow. of the wallet. Right now, he also ta- went talked at length about like white papers and like very nitty gritty in all crypto. And like I couldn't I couldn't help but like steal a glance when I was getting up and I was like, oh, no, this poor man. It was like. <laughs> It was the thing of like the cautionary tale of like, oh God, I hope retail investors aren't taking this on the head. It was like, this guy should yeah. not, right? I was in Austin for a crypto conference and I had an Uber driver who doesn't you know, work in crypto at all. Yeah. I mean, he had a good attitude about it, but he told me about losing thousands of dollars right. on a stupid crypto trade. And he was like, look, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew uh, about the risks, but still like it stressed me out to yes. hear about his oh, losses. I was very stressed out, very stressed out by this whole interaction. <laughs> but it brought to light like the level of uncertainty, like you were talking about about how, I mean, international, we all kind of know. Like that is, it's very uncertain, right? But even at state to state, like it's like kind of marijuana sales. Anything that is not regulated federally in the states is sort of a nightmare to deal with you know, even municipality to municipality basis in some cases, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people don't know the nuances of what those laws are. And companies get affected by it too. And I think that's been regulators' mistake. Mm-hmm. That's been their bad. Because I know that, you know, a couple months ago, BlockFi got in a bunch of trouble because of their interest-bearing accounts, like their yield, yield crypto accounts. And they said they were offering some sort of interest-bearing product and got in regulatory hot water. But they were sort of saying, like, there are so many other crypto companies that are also doing this. And we didn't really know that it was wrong. At least that was sort of their argument. You know, I'm not really sure whether I can litigate whether they deserve that enforcement or not. But I think enforcement has been really spotty. And it does seem unfair to crack down on one thing versus, you know, if other companies are engaging it, not to crack down on them. Like, I think regulators have tried to make an example of a lot of companies. And as a crypto company, I wouldn't want to be an operator in the crypto space. No. Like you, you just don't know what's coming around the corner. No, absolutely not. There's no sort of like predictability, right? But then on the other hand, that treating some people's examples doesn't seem to be working for the true bad actors because they're just like, well, but still the odds, the likelihood are that I'm going to be able to continue operating as I am and get away with it, right? Because they don't have the resources to go after all of us. So it's fine. Yeah. Well, there's a funny news story that happened today that kind of relates to all of this, which is that Coinbase, there was a Coinbase ex-product manager who got in trouble for insider trading because he was basically telling his brother when new coins would be listed Mm. on the exchange and his brother would buy them beforehand. And they made over a million dollars, I think it was like 1.5 million on these trades. But And obviously people know that this sort of thing goes on in crypto all the time now. So it's interesting to see, like, is this really the reckoning that people have been waiting for? And are regulators going to seize this opportunity now to come in? Because they've known this has been going on for a while, too. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, I think that's about all the time we have, but I'm very curious to see how this goes because it sounds like there needs to be a very centralized regulatory moment for this very decentralized Ooh, technology. This, so that, that word is a little controversial, Daryl, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let it slide. Listen, just come at me in my mentions. Leave Anita's alone. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Thanks again. Next, we talked to Lauren Forrestal about Netflix's largest quarterly subscriber loss ever and what they're changing to make up for it. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. There was a lot of Netflix news this week and you were oh, on yeah. it. And yes. it came out of the earnings mostly, right? Yeah. So on Tuesday, they reported second quarter early earnings. They were pretty bad. Um, the loss was <laughs> 970,000 subscribers, nearly 1 million. Wow. So it was a big deal, especially as like a 24-year-old company. Apparently it wasn't like so bad because they only predicted a net loss of 2 million. So I'm wow, sure they're okay. like a little relieved. <laughs> like it's just a nearly 1 million, not 2 million. But how much of that is them being like... Let's make it so that it looks. Yeah, like they were a just win. trying. Like, the, yeah, they were just like, oh, uh, you know, we're. They pretty much said they're like, oh, it's going to be stable from here on out. That's like quote like okay. what they said. Yeah, last quarter they got two hundred thousand, a loss of two hundred thousand subscribers. Yeah. so that's a huge jump. Yeah. But like, it's important to remember they have a total of two hundred twenty million subscribers already. That's right. They're still top dog. Like they're still the best. But just because of everything that's happening, it looks really bad um, and everyone's mm -hmm. worried. It's a whole thing. So they forecasted a 1 million gain in the next quarter too. So I think they're like trying to be confident about it. Interesting. Yeah. So I think they're basically going to gain back all of the people oh, yeah. they lost oh, yeah. this quarter. I mean, well, huh. well, their ad supported tier isn't coming out. So basically they're trying to make revenue, trying to get more subscribers because they're just really going through it. Like 450 employees got laid off. It's just a whole thing. Yeah. Like projects are being canceled. They need <laughs> revenue and more subscribers. So the way like Netflix is combating that is one, like finally getting a cheaper ad support tier, which finally happened. Like it was just a huge shock to everyone, I think. Yeah. And and I think it'll just hit two birds with one stone, like a little bit more revenue and subscribers because people want, I don't think a lot of people want to sit through ads, but they want a cheaper ad support tier, right? Like Netflix is right. $15 a month or something. Keeps going up. Yeah, I don't even going know how to pay for it I anymore. I don't even know anymore. I'm just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Another price hike. Okay. In the earnings mm -hmm. call, they said the tier is coming out early 2023 and it'll have a slow rollout. Also, Chief Executive Officer Ted Sarandos, he basically confirmed what everyone has been talking about with the whole content licensing. Oh, right. So in order for all of Netflix's library to be on the ad tier, Ted said they're in talks with studios and renegotiating deals. So these subscribers who want to pay less can actually get the same content as playing with no ads. Mm -hmm. I think if that happened, if they couldn't renegotiate deals, it'd be so annoying to subscribers, especially because if they can't watch the new season of The Crown or whatever, and they're paying less, yeah. like they're going to be upset and it's going to, they're going to, just like cancel. Just, That's what was surprising to me yeah. reading your story because I, I never just assumed or I just kind of did assume that anything that was like a Netflix original would carry over but that's not the case right like you're saying even things that are Netflix originals not stuff that they license from like Paramount or whatever like big theatrical releases like yeah. the stuff they brand as a Netflix original might not make it into the ads. Exactly. I think yeah it was like you well these are all like alleged they're I think I just read it from Wall Street mm -hmm. how like you is from Warner Bros and then Universal has some stuff. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, because if you're signing up and you're like, I'm signing up for Netflix. And they're like, all right, here you go. And you're like, this is a Netflix. Because Netflix is yeah. associated with these things and these titles that I think of when I think of exactly. Netflix. And it's like, they're not even I mean, on here. They're probably going to get Stranger Things, which is right. what, I mean, I personally care about the most. <laughs> but season's ending next. Well, they're having only one more season. Yeah. But they did confirm a spinoff. That's right. 
but like they can't they're banking on that for success right now yeah. like that is their content that's true that's their big marquee draw now they used to have a few of yeah. those where that where it was like a no-brainer like this is the thing that brings everybody in and now it seems like they only really have maybe that one or maybe a couple if you're being yeah, they very have, generous. i mean they have stranger things love island squid game but everything else has been coming out. Well, also they did The Gray Man, which just came out. That's right. Although the reviews I saw for that were not great. But on the okay, other hand, well, I yeah. don't think people care that much about reviews. So No, no. <laughs> well, because Red Notice was also like this big action with yeah. like the big stars. Didn't do well. No. <laughs> so I don't think they're really <laughs> grasping what the subscribers really want. Yeah. And they want the originals. They want the authentic like they don't care about big star. I don't think people do anymore. No, the that's Hollywood, just me. Like I don't. It's I care about the, the quality. Yeah. Everyone cares about the quality. You're paying for quality. Yeah, because Stranger Things was a star making show. Right. Like it didn't. It didn't bring stars in. Oh, well, with the exception of a known writer. But like most of the people on that show were previously unknown and then became famous because of it. exactly. Yeah. And Will is popping off right now. So yeah. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like they got 1.3 billion hours viewed. And then Squid Game is 1.65 billion. So right. I was like, that was what they were in the earnings call. That it was like they repeated that a couple times. Wow! Like, they were like Stranger Things. We can still make hits. But, but forget it. Like remember Stranger Things. Yeah. Remember that. <laughs> um, like we're doing well. Um, and they, I mean they are. Like I don't know. But with the ad supported tier, one thing I question I have about that is like. Did they have given any indication what they think that will do? Do they think that will cannibalize it all, or do they think that'll be all net new ads and like they'll retain? They're paying subscribers like people won't go down to that tier, but people will come on board who were previously. I imagine that must be their hope. But did they talk? about Yeah, I that? think that's their hope that people will see that there's a cheaper tier yeah. and then go on that. Yeah, maybe people, previously they were like, we're not even going to subscribe. But I, I wonder if there's a danger. Yeah, that, well, people are still subscribed. I don't feel like people that are subscribed now don't care about the price. Probably. Yeah. Or at least they're getting like they're just like, OK, fine. Yeah. But people that are really like unsubscribing, I think it's because of just how, well, one, like, I feel like they do have a quality and content issue right now, just because of COVID and how they're canceling projects. Yes. I don't remember if it was an earnings call, but they said like COVID really even like hit recording Stranger Things. I think it said, yeah, the overall efficiency of spending, it had a huge impact on that. It was a very expensive burden. So I don't know why they did the Gray Man either, because the production budget was 200 million. Yeah. So I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> it seems like it's tough to get a return on that. That's, uh, yeah. I know. <laughs> but they're also doing the password sharing offering. Right. So that's like, they're basically going to charge people for sharing their account. I haven't heard of that, like, ever mm -hmm. being done on a streaming service. I could be wrong. But, like, when I heard that, I was like, are you, like, what? People are going to be so annoyed with that. People will be. I think, like, the closest I'm, thing. I'm even sharing an account. I no, of course. Most people are. Most people are. It's, yeah. it's fine to admit. No one, the police won't listen to this and come after you. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's uh, going to come get me. <laughs> <laughs> but like stuff like Spotify and Apple Music, like the musical streaming services, they tend to offer these family plans as a kind of way around that. Like it's a tacit yeah. acknowledgement. But Netflix, it seems like the household thing is going to be, you're right, a bitter pill to swallow. They're testing it in a few markets. Now, I have a couple of questions about that. Do you think they count those people when you do that? Will they count them as new subs? Like when they add a sub, when they add a mm. household, will they say like, okay, that's going to be a new sub for us on our balance sheet? Or are they going to... Gonna... That's an interesting question. Yeah. I have no idea. Because it is one account technically. Right, right. But yeah, because I guess this will give them a idea of how many people 
or in one account. I yeah. don't know. But I mean, it all depends on if they even roll out. Because I think they're testing it in Latin America right now. Is that correct? Yeah. So they're doing the ad extra member test in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. Mm-hmm. I forget where they're doing the ad home feature. That just came out on Monday. Oh, I think they said they're going to start in Argentina, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Just, okay. uh, I yeah. just read that. So <laughs> That's why I know. Well, yeah. There you go. I think it's going to be a while until it hits the U.S. Yeah. But, and like Canada. I think they only lost 1.3 million subscribers in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the combined total I saw, which means... Yeah. Which means they lost a lot of subscribers in Canada relative to a per capita. Because if you're making up whatever, 300,000 to 400,000 to add to that 970 in the U.S., it's a lot of Canadians relative to our population. Yeah. 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 But I don't know. I'm still subscribing. I wasn't one of them. Sometimes I question why I'm subscribing. And then they put out like I know. a new terrible reality TV show. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this oh, yeah. is why. Those documentaries get me. <laughs> like, I need to see the documentary. And especially, well, there's one about the mushrooms that just came out. But I just saw this one about Girl in a Picture. Oh, God. Everyone's talking about that. It's oh, okay. Cool. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so overall for Netflix, though, like it seems like there's a lot of just kind of like doom and gloom. But you as you pointed out, like they still have 220 million subscribers. Yeah. Do you think the negative reaction is overplayed or do you think it's kind of merited because it's starting to become a trend? Or what do you think about the overall kind of picture for Netflix? Yeah, I don't know, because they can't get any more subscribers than that. Right. I think HBO has like don't know the actual number mm-hmm. above 70 million yeah probably yes probably <laughs> so they're gonna stagnate like it's not gonna get that's just how it's gonna stay yeah. i think yeah um, i think that's what everyone else is predicting so it does look bad it's a big number and it's like the biggest quarterly loss ever that they've ever had mm-hmm. i don't think it's gonna look good for them and i think people are gonna look at that and be like oh well, then why am i subscribing kind of thing yeah but also people don't really care. Some people just don't even care. Like they're like, okay, it's content. Like I watch Stranger right. Things or whatever. But yeah, I don't know if they'll gain as much as they think they will. Yeah. I think the thing to watch will be these other attempts, right? Like you said, I think that everybody has now kind of agreed, like this is the ceiling, right? Like Netflix has shown us the ceiling. We can all expect that. In a way, it's a huge boon for everybody else, for Disney+, Plus, yeah. for HBO Max, for whatever else. Because it's like, hey, we get to see it coming. We don't have to just hit the wall in the way that Netflix hits the wall. We see that's the ceiling. So let's get our ass in gear in terms of like developing our other revenue models now, right? So that when we get yeah, there, we're exactly. prepared. Whereas Netflix is like, I guess we got to try these things. Like, add support. Yeah, they're just trying everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's what I think. I mean, yeah, they're still top dog, but yeah, everyone's trying to either prevent what's happening to them or yeah, like what you said, trying to just come up with strategies. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Lauren. I hope yeah. they survive long enough that we get that last season of Stranger Things. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Which they definitely will. I want to see will. the spinoff too. Yeah, yeah, that too. That too. And I personally really like Umbrella Academy as well. It's been great this season. I think oh, we're going to yeah. continue uh, with that. But not a I have, fan. I have different opinions. I have different <laughs> opinions. But that's okay. The first season was so good, though. Yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, thanks again. Great talking yeah. to you. And I'm sure we'll have you back to talk more about Netflix and other streaming services in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TC Podcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two year terms. And be sure to check out all the other TC Podcasts, Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week.
The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.